Before I start, I'll, I'll just going to let you know, it was about 10 minutes ago we finished digging up the marrow, so it was cool to see you in that. Oh my God, you finished digging up the, the what? The marrow. Uh, I don't oh, I forgot. I forgot the guy's name. Uh, the one with Ray Wise. Uh, oh, the one with Ray Wise. You're talking about uh, Twisted Tales. Is that it? Oh, no, no. It was, it was uh, oh, I forgot. I've instantly gone blank. But the, the director from who made uh, Frozen and the Hatchet movies. Oh, okay, kind of a, okay. A mockumentary. And uh, you showed up at, at one point and said, oh, you don't really believe that bullshit, do you? <laughs> well, that was Adam Green. Adam, That's That's Adam Green gave me the joke and said, would you mind doing this? And I, <laughs> Adam really Green and that. Joe Lynch. Adam Green yeah. and Joe Lynch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> and okay, Ray so Wise is a lovely guy, too. And a yeah. terrific actor. Yeah. He always seems to be a really nice, a really nice guy when I see him in interviews, and he plays the most intense characters. Yes, yes. <laughs> Enjoy scaring the hell out of you. Yeah. Okay. So, right, three, two. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Silver Screen's Cult Classics. I'm DK, and we've got a rare treat for you listeners today, as I'm speaking to a legend in the movie business. He's an actor, screenwriter, author, and director with such classics under his belt as Psycho 2, Cloak and Dagger, Child's Play, and Fright Night. He's also a personal hero of mine, so allow me to say a big welcome to uh, Mr. Tom Holland. Big welcome back, everybody. Thank you, sir. How are you today? Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for asking me. How am I? I'm I'm here. I don't know. I feel <laughs> buried by there's so much going on, you know, and I you know, I, I I'm trying to you know, I'm getting the word out on the on the child's play book, so I'm I'm doing more uh, I'm doing more uh, podcasts and interviews than I normally do and trying to schedule it all and write at the same time. No, oh, not easy. Well, I'll, not easy. I'll, I'll make sure we get a link direct to the Child's Play book on, so when it goes up live, people can click straight through. It is. It is up live. It's on Amazon and it's on TerrorTime.shop. Fantastic. <laughs> well, Go as on. I say, thank you for uh, for taking the time out to uh, to talk to us here on the show. So I'm going to get straight into it. What first inspired you to become involved in the movie business? Was there a specific moment that made you think, that's what I want to do? I'm, I, nobody in my family or anybody that, that, that I knew had anything to do with, uh, with, with movies or Hollywood. I'm from a small town called Highland, New York, mid-state New York. It's, uh, it used to be farm country and apple orchards and mushroom farms and cattle. And uh, it, it, it now it's off the Hudson River, opposite Poughkeepsie. And uh, it's now growing into more of a bedroom community for Poughkeepsie. But anyway, when I, I don't know. I fell in love with movies. You know, I mean, at first I fell in love with books. I was a reader. I'm talking when I was adolescent. And then I fell... In high school or, or junior high school, I fell in love with movies and I just went to see everything. But there was hardly anybody else that I knew in high school 
certainly any of my parents' friends that had any interest whatsoever. You know, so I, I just, I just don't know. And then I, there was no way to get into a movie, show business, whatever you want to call it, that I knew about. Uh, you know, because usually it's nepotism. Let's be honest about yeah. it. Yeah. And I had none of that. The uh, so I got myself to a to a school a high school that had uh, a drama coach and the drama coach marked my enthusiasm and he set me up with an, with a, with, a, with an interview and to be a, an apprentice at a summer stock theater called Bucks County, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And the, the, the summer, the, 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 the new hope playhouse, it was the new hope playhouse was, uh, was pre Broadway as a tryout on the circuit. So it had a very, very high level of professional productions and actors coming in. And I, I talked to, to a lot of people and everybody said, be an actor. And uh, that was because it was the only, only thing open. Uh, there was no way to get onto uh, in, in, in the film but people could people could see you know uh, theater you know off Broadway summer stock, uh, winter stock. I did all of that. I, I I you know all I toured. I anyway from 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 being at the at the working as an apprentice in a summer stock theater. I learned about acting classes in New York, and the following summer I was working as a clerk in uh, a men's store which happened to be owned by my parents. And uh, I started going in on Saturday into New York City and taking acting classes at the at the Herbert Berghoff or HB Studios, as it was known then. It's sort of me and about 60 years worth of actors who've gone through the HB Studio on 21 Bank Street, the village, the uh, Greenwich Village or, or whatever it was in New York City. And from that, I got a, I got an agent and uh, the agent got me when I was, I, I got that, I started to head for, for theater after I got into, I got into Northwestern University Theater School in the first year. And I also picked up an agent in New York City as an actor. And I got a, 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 a seven-year contract at Warner Brothers. Mm. Yeah, and, and and the year was 1963, because that's where I was when JFK was assassinated, and I had to go to court to be able to sign a seven-year contract because I was under 21. I think I was 20, and uh, I I was this. I started to learn about the business because I could wonder I could wander around Warner Brothers and go into where they were doing the production. I could go into the editing rooms, the, the, you know, listen to the sound, you know, and I started to learn about it technically, which I'd yeah. never had any access to before. And this was at the moment when the Hollywood studios were being crushed by the advent of television. And I appeared on such shows as the last season of 77 Sunset Strip, which was a huge huge like seven or eight year television series and 
the studios couldn't figure out how to get movies going and making money anymore. And I was let go from the contract because at the yeah. same time, the television business was, was shifting and nobody knew what was going on, but it was like the death of movies. I was at Warner brothers when the, when the, 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 the race course set from my fair lady was still standing on the biggest stage that Warner brothers had. And it was wow. a monstrous set and beyond impressive. I also wandered and played around on the Camelot sets from the Camelot music, which were in the back lots of Warner Brothers. And people talked to me and I got, I got, I got sort of an overall idea of the technical aspects of making film, but not enough. When I was released from contract and went back to New York, I got into doing television commercials which the back then the biggest uh, conglomeration of creative people outside of Hollywood and the movies was in advertising. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, everybody shot, everybody shot commercials was in them or I was working both as an actor in front of the lens, but also I got a, I had a day job. I could job in working production for the commercials. So I always had a way to make 100, 125 a day. Okay, which oh, nice. in 1964 or five was very important. <laughs> and uh, somehow that I was still going out for acting. And I got a uh, I got a soap opera called The Time for Us and another one called Flame of the Wind. And I became a soap opera star at, at, a, at a very out of, I, you know, I was in my early 20s. I wasn't even mid. And uh, I got mobbed at the at the Beatles concert at Shea Stadium in 1966. And it was because they were so frustrated. The, 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 the audience was not being able to get to the Beatles. Somebody recognized me from the soap and started screaming my the name of the character. And all of a sudden, my who then was my girlfriend, but became my wife, we were chased out of there and the place, the, the police saved us at Shea Stadium. Anyway, incredible stuff. And oh, wow. yeah, and then then I was starting to get I was starting to get I would fly out to LA to test for TV series. I'm still not interested in this, by the way. I mean, I'm still <laughs> more interested in film. I mean, I was never, I was never, I never had the hunger that yeah. that the true actors have you know i was more interested in how do you make the damn thing and i got into the actor's studio in la and this was when lee strasberg was still teaching it would be like 1966 or 67 and i was there through the early 70s and they had a playwrights unit and i started working there first as an actor then I came in and I started directing them and they had a writer's unit at the actor's studio and they were all screenwriters, but they were more than just aspiring. They were screenwriters who were working. There were people like Jim Bridges. It was, I can't remember the names now, Jim, I remember, but the, uh, the, I started directing these one act plays on the, on the stage at the actor's studio in DeLongpre in Hollywood. I think it's still there. Lou Antonio, great actor, is now running it. Haven't seen him in decades. And uh, 
I could make a, I could, you can give me a scene, a dramatic scene. I mean, if it's well written and I can figure out how to make it play, I can yeah. work with the actors and I can block it. And when I realized that I had that ability, that made me more anxious than anything else to direct. And I had headed for, if I could become a, a big enough commercial director, think Ridley Scott and Tony Scott. Yeah. then maybe I could direct feature films. I had very, very little interest in television except I was doing it as an actor to make money like The Incredible Hulk. I, I guess start on that and I can't. Anyway, the, the, at that moment in time, that was just when Hollywood had been blown apart by Easy Rider, okay? When yeah. Easy Rider exploded, and broke through and got the youth audience, which at the time would have been youthful boomers, uh, the Hollywood had a breakdown. They didn't know anymore what the audience would, what the youthful, the, the, the this huge boomer generation were going to want to see after Easy Rider. And that threw the door open at that moment in time for original screenplays. Okay, and they started buying them, and not only did they buy them, they made them. And most of them were not very good, not very successful, but a few were. And along, in along with that, you had Spielberg breaking through. And, you know, and Brian De Palma and, you know, all those people. Uh, and I started writing screenplays. This was when you would go to a, to a deli in L.A., and every waiter was an actor. You turned around <laughs> three or four years later, and every waiter or waitress was giving you a screenplay, an original <laughs> screenplay. <laughs> you, you, you know? And now, of course, it's just despair because nobody knows what the hell's going on with streaming. Yeah. Uh, but but anyway, so I I I swear it took me 10 years from the time I was I started the I apprenticed in the summer of my 16th birthday me more than 10 years so by 19 i i don't know somewhere in there i got my first screenplay option 1974 and that encouraged me enough that i was using acting and working commercial production to support the writing okay yeah. and I was a beat ahead of, of everybody else in that sense. A couple of years later, everybody of all everybody was doing it, but at that point, it was just me, pretty much. And I started to get thing, uh, things optioned, and uh, I got my first movie of the week, television movie, produced. I forget the year, but it was the initiation of Sarah, 1977. That's only been remade. I think it's been remade two or three times. The, but it was a huge was a, it was a huge thing on television, and that gave me some visibility. And then I start. I finally got my first movie produced, The Beast Within. Okay, and it was a United Artist, and the year was nineteen seventy eight or nine. Okay. And so I thought I'd finally arrived. I had my first movie produced by a major United artist. And just as they were getting ready to release it, they went bankrupt. 
with the destruction of Heaven's Gate. Oh, yeah. Which destroyed United Artists. And so The Beast Within is the last movie that UA released. It was a success and nobody noticed. Nobody paid any attention because all they were talking about was uh, was 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 a uh, dance, you know, uh, yeah. Tremino movie. So what I'm saying is, I mean, I felt like putting a gun to my head. You know, I thought finally I would be able to to work and and get movies produced, and more important than anything else, make a living. And yeah. suddenly I was unemployed again because <sighs> I thought my nobody knew, nobody cared. And I'm sitting around in, in total uh, panic, despair, or whatever, you know, because at that point, the big 4-0 is coming up. And if you're a guy, uh, and maybe girls, I don't know, but, you know, you, if, you don't, if you don't have your, if you haven't figured out what you're trying to do, and if you're not making a living at it, and you're 40 years old, you're in deep trouble. Yeah. At least in America. <laughs> I don't know about Great Britain, but, you know, in America. And I kept on writing originals and I wrote a script and it got sent to an Aussie named Richard Franklin, who was having a 19th nervous breakdown because he had finally gotten the chance from UA. I'm from UCLA. He was from USC. He finally had the chance to, to, to direct the movie and he needed a writer. And the movie was Psycho 2. Yeah. I was, okay. was going to ask you about that. You, I mean, okay. you were hired to pen a sequel to arguably the most, yeah. most iconic horror, horror thriller of all time. Uh, Which, did you have any trepidation going into that? I mean, oh my God, yes. I was terrified. I figured it was the end of my career, which I had thought was just getting started. You know, but I didn't. I, I've been out of work for a year after my first movie comes out, and. Nobody wanted to do Psycho 2 because it was a career ender. Yeah. You cannot be in the, forget about even in the horror genre, but that's a classic movie. Psycho. Psycho changed horror. Psycho mm -hmm. is the beginning of what we consider modern day horror. Psycho was the first slasher film. Psycho created the first horror icon, Norman Bates. Anthony Perkins. I mean, it was, it was, it, 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 it blew my mind. I was like 12 or 13 when I saw it. And I don't, I mean, I'd grown up in AIP and Hammer films, you know, I yeah. mean, that was, you know, Peter Vincent, you know, from Fright Night. That's who <laughs> Peter, you know, who was named for Vincent Price and Peter uh, Cushing. Am I right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Nobody wanted it because they knew they were going to get ripped by the critics. And I was so desperate. I said, yes, please give it to me. Please let me do it. You know? And Richard Franklin gave me the job because I'd written a script called The Crystal Tower, which has been bought and optioned and dropped and has been in production, pre-production. It's never gotten made. But it's a script that people don't seem to be able at the time for about 20 years, people couldn't keep their hands off of it. And it did a lot for me as a writer, as a sample. Uh, and uh, I got to take a crack at writing Psycho 2. And I don't think I've ever worked harder on a script. 
to the yeah. best of my knowledge, that stands on the given circumstances from the original. Psycho 2, I mean. And Richard Franklin was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I went on to do Cloak and Dagger with him, and he wasn't so brilliant. But he was brilliant with, with Psycho 2. Because yeah. he, he growing up with it like I had, with considering it, you know, the the best horror film ever made, you know, opening. I, I didn't, I don't think I even knew what editing bits and pieces of film were until I saw Psycho 2. I mean, yeah. I figured out when I saw this shower scene, I said, well, that's a, a lot of different setups in there to get that, you know? Yeah. I think they took three or four days to shoot it. The uh, <laughs> Anyway, the, that, that film we didn't have Tony Perkins. Psycho 2 without Tony Perkins was like, forget it. It was like Jaws without Spielberg. Yeah. The, uh, and so I had to write a script. And he'd already turned it down, Tony. That, that's something else. The, uh, and Robert Block had wrote in the, written the book, uh, the Psycho 2 book. But he killed, he killed Norman in the, at the end of the first chapter. I mean, right. so, I, so I don't know what Robert Block was thinking about. I did, I did a symposium with him afterwards at the Writers Guild, and I should have asked him, but I didn't because he was he was too critical about the violence in Psycho Two. Uh -huh. Anyway, the <laughs> Psycho Two turned out to be an enormous hit, and none of us thought that was going to happen. So we, I had to write a script that was strong enough that that tony would say yes which and i was an actor so i i mean i know about about uh character arcs and i i thought i did a i did a brilliant one there actually if he says so himself but i mean norman bates comes out of the institution at 22 years and he's desperately holding on to his sanity okay yeah. he's trying and you as you watch the movie you feel sorry for him you I was know, about to say this. There's a lot of ambiguity in it that not to the point where you're not unsure. You're unsure. Not only are you unsure that he's guilty, but you're actively rooting for the guy. You don't want him to be. You don't want him to be reverting to how he was. Right. Well, even more. You're doing what Hitchcock did. You're being forced to identify with a serial murderer. OK. Yeah. I mean, and that's. That makes you. That makes the audience uncomfortable to, be, to begin with. Yeah. Uh, the anyway, anyway, every the, the cast, Vera Miles, uh, Tilly, uh, everybody was just excellent. Richard was spot on. We had blocked it out. We blocked out all of the scenes as I wrote. The uh, we 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 watched or rewatched every movie that Hitchcock had ever made including the silent movies. And we, we, we pulled out those moments where he had gone to what visual set pieces he had, he had made, he had caught the, the, the suspense of it with the camera angles. I'm, I'm writing a, I'm, I, I am right now preparing a book on, on psycho to, uh, I guess you'd call, I did it with the making of a child's play, uh, a visual memoir. But I'm going to do it with Psycho 2 because we've just had the 40th anniversary and it exploded. I had no idea that, 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 that the, the, 
the fan base for Psycho 2 was, was as uh, deep as it, as, it, as it seems to have become. About 10 or 12 years ago, I went to the Blacklist, which is a, a writing group that's, that's very prestigious. And all the horror directors were there. Everybody that you could, uh, I sat next to British Brady's Ellis, so James Wong was across the room, everybody. And they voted, this is 10, 8, 10 years ago, they voted Psycho 2 the best horror sequel ever. Wow. And I almost fell off my chair, you know, because nobody had mentioned it to me in 20 years. Now, in 1982, that summer, it was the second biggest grossing movie after the first sequel to Star Wars. Yeah. Which, which was unthinkable. When I started out doing that, Sony wanted to dump Psycho 2 as a cable movie. This is just when cable is beginning. If you look at it at the end, you'll see Oak Communications uh, produced it. They originally had a cable deal on it, um, Universal. And so, in other words, we were doing a, a nowhere movie, Richard and I. We were the only ones who were impressed to death by the title. You know, don't you realize what you have here? No, they did not. Anyway, they when Tony said he'd do it because he fell in love with the park, they put out a press release. And the reaction internationally, worldwide, was enormous. Norman Bates is, I mean, I mean, Tony Perkins is coming back to do Norman Bates' Psycho 2. The entire world wanted to see that. And Universal was like, uh-oh, we got a movie here. Now, they, we, we made that movie for something like $4,980,000. In other words... It, we only one shot that we leave the back lot of, of Universal was the cheapest way you could possibly make the movie, you know. Yeah. And and yet we were able to get the house built, the Psycho House. It wasn't there before that. My no? memory, no, there was nothing oh, no. there. I I have the photos now. I have my my I have my Polaroids. Richard has his photos, and Richard wrote a memoir and he wrote it about psycho two and it's fascinating and i'm going to put his memories in and then my i'm going to do a paragraph with him and then a paragraph from me so you're going to have the director and the writer from 40 years ago discussing the making of psycho two so i mean so i'm i'm excited about that and i i had never read his memoirs before, and I had no idea what the process was like from his perspective, from the director's perspective. And since I was deliriously happy with the movie, I'm only saying great things about Richard Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that was the beginning of my career, finally. I started yeah. writing, I started writing in the late 60s, and you're talking 1982. So that was at least 12, 14 years to, to, to get where I finally had yeah. a movie that gave me a, a, a career as a, as a screenwriter. Yeah. And Richard and I had, this is, your audience is going to be interested in this and we're taking up a lot of time, but Richard, I wrote, we went on and we made Cloak and Dagger. I wrote it for Richard. Richard directed it. Then I was writing Scream for Help. And Richard was going to do that, and he bailed on me uh -huh. halfway through. He got he got he got the link set up, and I was left alone with Michael Winter. And 
people seem to laugh a little bit about Michael Winter, but I found them absolutely charming. But, yeah. but, but he got through with my script on Screen for Help, and what he did was he cut all the dialogue that, 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 that established what was, why the people were the way they are and what they were trying to do and who they were. And before you were through, you, you, had, a, you had an acting piece with no acting in it because he'd taken it all away from the actors. Uh-huh. And the movie, the movie, the movie couldn't. You could see it there in the cut, but he didn't cover it so it could be recut to bring in to bring the characters more alive. Uh, so anyway, so the, but but the, so that was sort of a a, a a disappointment. And after that, I felt like I, if anybody's going to screw up my next script, it's going to be me. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, you, you know, you, you go like this, you know, like, what are you doing now that you can only get to where you feel like that after you've had some kind of success, at least I, to me, some kind of confidence. And so I wrote on spec right night oh. and I went out, we went out to try to sell that with me directing and I, MGM tried to buy it away from me without me directing. And I kept turning everybody down. And yet I was successful enough as a screenwriter. I was getting all these major offers for movies. And a man called Guy McElwain, he was head of Columbia. They had an empty slot on their release schedule for that year. And they gave it to me. And I'm not quite sure how it happened, but I'll be forever grateful to Guy McElwain who's no longer with us because he gave me the opportunity and nobody paid attention to Fright Night. The reason they did it, you want to know how Hollywood works? They had had an enormous success with uh, with uh, bu- 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 Ghostbusters and yeah. they were yeah. expecting to do a sequel and they wanted to keep the effects team, which was then the best effects team in town, that was Richard Edlin. That was uh, Randy Cook. The, you know, uh, oh God, Steve Johnson. You know, there were so many of them. But I got that group for both the visuals, like the back going off the the the, the, the balcony and changing, and you see the shadow it changes. And Jerry goes off, changes into a bat in the shadow, and then comes back into life with a real back coming at you. Yeah. That was Richard Edlin. So I had on my little movie. That, that that nobody was paying attention to. I had the best effects team in Hollywood, and they were brilliant. And that's why you have Amy's mouth. You know, that's that's why you have the, the terrific uh, of say Evil Ed. You know, I mean, my gosh, it was like a dream, and nobody bothered me from the oh. studio because it was the cheapest movie that they they had, and they didn't expect it to do any business. And it was mainly because they were going to keep Richard Edlin in place for the, for the sequel of Ghostbusters, which they didn't do for years, it turned out. Yeah. Anyway, Fright Night opens, and it does, it does good business. It, it, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not Jaws 3 or whatever, but I mean, it, very, very good. And gets a lot of note. Because I think the... I think sounds very conceited of me and egotistical but i have i have a voice you know i mean i'm i'm i i wasn't i wasn't trying to to redo the biggest success 
from last year. Yeah. I was trying to find my own voice, my own stories, and push ahead. And uh, that was that was Fright Night, and my career took off. Yeah. I mean, it's when you look at it, you assembled so not only behind the camera, but in front of the camera, you had some really great actors. I mean, you get the impression that it was kind of a – just watching it, and I don't know if it's because I'm just a huge fan of it. It's one of my all-time favorites, but you get the impression it was – fun to shoot is that correct yes it was huge fun all we did was laugh all the time i mean i've got i've got like 30 seconds of footage that roddy shot as we were getting ready for the group photo and uh you can feel it you can feel how the, um, the cast was having a great time because we had we had this was extraordinary things that never happened again on our first film, I had two weeks of rehearsal time with the actors. So, I mean, I could, I had that whole script. I had it on its feet and you could, you could look at it like a play and it worked like a play. You could see it worked. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I, but the actors had, because we had had the time chance to rehearse it and break it down scene by scene. All the actors were spot on. So when I started to shoot, I hardly had to say anything because all the rehearsal had been done. And it's it's an opportunity that I never had again because studios don't want to pay the actors for rehearsal. Uh, I mean, you worked with uh, Roddy McDowell before on Class of 84. I was a well, I was, was, person. It was Go because he'd, he'd been brilliant in Class of 84. Yeah, I understand he wasn't the first choice for Peter Vincent. Is that right? I wanted, I wanted to have Vincent Price. Yes, and I reached out to him, and his health was not would not allow him to do to do to do Fright Night. I, I can't imagine it now because after we were finished, Roddy had me over for dinner at his house with Vincent Price and his wife. And Vincent Price, to me, was like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know, like Freddy Krueger is now. I, I, I can't yeah. explain it. The, I mean, he, I, the, among the dumbest things I've did is I didn't take an autograph book around with me when I went out socially. You know, because I met so many people at that point during that time. And a lot of it was because of Roddy, because Roddy was so social and he'd have me over and I was meeting stars. I mean, one of the funniest evenings my wife and I ever had was with Walter Matthau and his wife at Roddy McDowell's. <laughs> and Matthau was, we couldn't, ha we couldn't get through dinner for laughing. You know, so there, there, there are these wonderful things. And of course, you know, and there are also the tragedies. Anyway. Is there anything you'd like to ask me soon? Because I should move on and really write a few pages. That's not a problem. That's not a problem. I was gonna. I was just gonna ask. Uh, you went on to work on Child's Play again with Chris Sarandon. Uh, obviously, you've got a good working relationship with him. What is it that makes him good as an actor to work with for you as a director? Well, he's a brilliant actor, Chris Sarandon. The uh, uh, all you have to go go from uh, the movie with, with uh, Al Pacino where he plays the trans to to Fright Night and you get an idea of his range. I, I cannot say enough about 
about Chris Saran. And the other thing is he has a very solid temperament. In other words, everybody on the, on the stage could be losing their minds and they were on child's play and Chris will be, be there as solid as, as you could ask for. And he'll be right on with the scene every time, even as everybody else is committing suicide. So I can't <laughs> speak highly enough. I mean, child's play was a huge undertaking please look at my book child's play a visual memoir i mean there were 11 and 12 puppeteers off screen for every shot on the doll i mean do you know what that i mean i can't just trying to shoot the damn thing was 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 extremely difficult because you were trying to i was trying to sustain the illusion that the doll was alive and moving without puppeteers and once you once you were off once you were to one side or the other <laughs> you had 11 12 puppeteers i built i built the apartment uh for the for the third act i built that about four or five feet off the off the stage floor we had puppeteers under the stage we drilled holes in the floor ran the cable up that made chucky work i would shoot chucky here and the cables would be hidden behind them coming out of the floor that's every shot, except where I used the little person, Ed Gale, who was terrific also. Anyway, and that, when I wrote that script, I knew it was going to be a huge hit because I couldn't stop writing it to find out what happened next. I put the first iteration of the, of the treatment of child's play in, in the visual memoir, along with the photos. It's all so you could see where I started and what the initial vision was that I had and how much of it I got on the screen. And that's always sort of a a dodgy question, but I think it's probably one. There's always a a gap between a director's hopes and what they end up with in cutting it together. And one of the great challenges of cutting it together is making not just a few scenes work, but as many as you can. Yeah. And uh, the child's play cut pretty Child's Play cut very, very, very well from the first preview. Whenever Chucky was on screen, the audience was with him. I mean, it, it, it was, I knew it when I wrote it. Chucky was a star, but you couldn't have called it Chucky because nobody knew what the, what the hell Chucky was. Yeah. At, least, at least Child's Play as a title gave it some kind of insight into what the experience might be. So, I mean, I've been very, very lucky. I also have my failures uh, and all of that, but I'm not going to spend an hour talking about the things that I did wrong or the bridges that I burned that I shouldn't have or caring too much or not caring enough. And I don't know how the hell I've gotten this far. It's a mystery. It's all a mystery. So So finally, I'd, I'd like to ask, what is next for you going forwards? Have you got any projects in the pipeline other than the Psycho uh, 2 memoir that you'd like to talk about? I am writing. Uh, I'm writing novels now and short stories. Uh, and I have all these. I, In a way, I'm writing all the. Um, yeah, thank you, Fright Night Origins. You'll find it on. That has never stopped selling. This is it. Uh, we uh, last Halloween in 2022, we we introduced Fright Night Origins. We're coming out with a sequel, Fright Night Aftermath. Hopefully this falls certainly by Halloween. Oh, fantastic! Uh, I mean, I got look. 
the problem with with writing original screenplays, as I know, is they buy them and then they, then they say, "Well, you didn't really write them. We got it now. We own it." Yeah. And I mean, I so I I Hollywood for all those aspiring people out there, get a good lawyer. Okay, get a good deal maker because it'll it'll come back and bite you. So what I realized that the only way to get copyright was to write it first as a book. Mm-hmm. So what I'm doing is I'm writing novels of the stories that I that I did or wanted to do as screenplays, and I'm I'm trying to get the novels out. But what I'm learning is it's taking me almost a year to write a novel. If I really had myself if I had had it worked out, I thought I could do two a year, but now I'm not so sure, but I wish the hell I could get up to two a year. So anyway, uh, there's well, some, I've given you some truth to this. So your audience out there, if you're, if you're aspiring actors, writers, or directors, I, I, I hope you can learn and find encouragement uh, from, from, from my experiences along with a little wisdom. That's what I think, anyway. That's fantastic. I mean, if you ever need an extra as a character in your next movie or your next book that needs to meet a grisly fate, perhaps at the hands of Jerry Dandridge, I'm always available. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your time and for the very, very good questions. You've made it very enjoyable. And to the audience out there, the only one way you're going to learn, and that's by doing it, and you don't have an excuse anymore not to shoot. Because you can do it on your iPhone now. God bless. Thank you very much. Good luck, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.